Blog Talk Radio. gentlemen, welcome to the Good Life Radio Show on this hot, humid day in New York City, second day of June, 2013. Despite the fact that this is basically a sports show, and the sports world is buzzing with the Heat Pacers Game 7, Yankees Red Sox battling for first place, and the Stanley Cup playoffs in full effect, I'm going to completely step out of my comfort zone tonight, and I'm not going to interview any athletes today. All 30, 40, 50 episodes I've done... 99% 99% of them have been athletes from Kenny Anderson, Rick Meyer, Tim Couch, Chris Canty, you know the list. I'm going to completely switch it up and do something for the second time, and I wish I could do it more. I'm going to interview Sean Atwood from Nat Geo's hit show, Locked Up Abroad. A quick background story on him, real quick, before we talk to him. He was a star of the show, Locked Up Abroad, on Nat Geo. It's like a tremendous show. It's, it's basically a docudrama that focuses on people who have been arrested while traveling abroad, usually for trying to smuggle drugs. Some episodes, people were kidnapped, and what have you. I interviewed Eric O'Day, maybe around two or three months ago. He was on Locked Up Abroad in Pakistan for smuggling. He actually had a lot of negative feedback, because I think he just kept professing his innocence and he had nothing to do with it. The reason I was so intrigued by Sean's episode, besides the fact it was fascinating at what he did after he gets out of jail, it was, he was just so brutally honest during all of it. I reached out to him. He was on the episode of Raving Arizona. Uh, the show portrayed him as a kid, grew up in England, always wanted to be a stockbroker in the USA. Um, he, the show portrays him as, as a stressed-out worker who went on a few times to raves, to clubs, taking some ecstasy, eventually selling it, and soon it became his primary source of income, making millions. The show shows him being threatened by Sammy the Bulls guys and other gangsters, he retires from the drug trade, but unbeknownst to him, the police have already gathered a ton of evidence against him. He was arrested. The story doesn't end there because, more importantly, he documented the inhumane treatment and the murder of some inmates in the jail that he witnessed. It convinced him to create a jailhouse blog, which you got to read it. You Google John's Jail Journal, J-O-N, Jail Journal. It's fascinating. Uh, there's so many questions I've been dying to ask him. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show... The aforementioned star of Locked Up Abroad, the author of Hard Times, my friend, Sean Atwood. Sean, thank you so much for joining the show, man. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Mike. Um, good afternoon in New York. It is um, 10.30 here in England at night. I'm glad we finally got together. We've been trying to set this up now for a couple of weeks, man. Thank you for calling in. Oh, you're welcome. But I did think my days of police officers trying to interview me were over. <laughs> Listen, I'll be as friendly as possible. Is that cool? Is it what, sorry? I said, well, I'll be as friendly as possible with you, so you have nothing to worry about. Okay, thank you. 
All right. So I gave a, I gave a quick background on the show, and a, a couple of background questions about you. I'm going to start off right from the beginning. What were you doing before you came to the United States, and like what drove you to become a stockbroker? Before the United States, I was a student in England, and I started following the stock market when I was about 14. I did economics in my high school, and only about six of us chose that subject. So the teacher really took me under his wing. He had me reading the Financial Times, explaining how, how all the stock market numbers worked. Then by 16, I borrowed 50 quid, 50 pounds, off my nan, and I doubled it in British Telecom shares. So I was hooked on the stock market in this very young age. I went down the library, ordered dozens of books on the subject. I was telling all my mates back then, I'm going to go to America, make a million in the stock market, and fly all you guys over. So that was my dream. I felt it was my calling in life from this very young age. Now, I originally wanted to be an investment analyst, but I wanted to go to Phoenix, Arizona, because I had two aunts living out there, and there wasn't many opportunities for investment analysts, but there was a lot of opportunities for stockbrokers. So as soon as I got there, I applied to all the local stock brokerages. I got accepted, and um, you know, I thought I was going to be making a lot of money and all this stuff. I had no idea what, what I was getting into. It was uh, in the first two years, it was commission only. It was basically glorified telesales because I was just, I was trying to build up my client base, and I was living off cheese on toast and bananas. I'd just gone there with my student credit cards, and you know, I was worried. I was gonna, I, I was making so, such a little amount of money. I was worried I was going to have to return home. But putting this all this work in, New York stock market opens at 9.30, I believe, 8.30. In Phoenix, Arizona, it's at 6.30 in the morning. So I was in the office at the 6 o'clock in the morning sales meeting and cold calling all day long those first two years. But putting all that work in, over a five-year period, I became the top guy in the office, grossing half a million. Had my own staff by then, secretary, cold callers. I'm only in my 20s, and I've got enough money to retire. And that's, um, I put it into technology shares, the money, and they all shot up, and that was how I became a stock market millionaire. See, now, I'm glad you, you hit both two questions I want to ask you. One was, because I found two things about the whole episode that were a little, that, that were a little fugazi on my part. One was Arizona, but I'm glad you answered it because you said you had family there, because when you think of the stock market, you think of New York. So I'm glad you answered that question. Yeah. Now, the yeah. second thing, the way the show portrayed you is, you know, you're a rookie stockbroker, and it, they basically showed you as being bored. But doing research for the interview, I saw that you made millions before you were 30. So you go out partying, one thing leads to another, and the show fast forwards a little bit. You end up at the guy Saul's house with X amount of money, and you're going to purchase a huge amount of ecstasy. At this moment, you become a drug dealer. What's going through your mind knowing you're yeah. entering the criminal world, knowing you have all this money? Because that's where I, I'm like, you have all this money. Why even try to enter the, the drug world? Well, I take I take full responsibility for the daft choices I made while I was on drugs and while I was in my twenties. I had more money than common sense. Doing the drugs had gone to my head. Throwing these parties, I was getting all this attention from all these people. It was like I was a rock star. You know, you're throwing a party, providing the drugs, beautiful women coming up to you all night, guys coming up to you impressed by your rising notoriety. And before all that, I was a shy student, you know, I wouldn't even get up and dance. I was too self-conscious, wasn't really into the alcohol scene. 
And then all of a sudden, I'm getting all this treatment, and it's, it's going straight to my head. And I'm thinking, all right, you know, I can go in the office and work all these long hours and, you know, be legit and make this money, or I could quit and just keep making money illegally and have all this attention and have all this fun hanging out with all these people. I didn't see what was coming at me down the road. I didn't see what it was all leading to. And I was just, it was a complete ego trick, a trip at that time. I was just getting off on all the attention. I was getting as addicted to the lifestyle I was, as I was getting addicted to the club drugs. And I wasn't realizing it. I was in denial. I was telling myself, oh, I'm just having a little party and I can stop whenever I want. I was saying that right up to the point where the SWAT team smashed my door down. <laughs> now, now, listen, the money starts pouring in. You're making a killing. What are you doing with the money? Are you doing stupid stuff with the money, or are you investing it? What are you doing with all this money you're making? I was doing stupid stuff with the money. I was getting limo rides here and there. If I wanted to do clothes shopping, we'd just jump on a plane, go out to L.A., you know, the diesel store or Las Vegas. Just throwing these parties, throwing after parties that lasted for days on end, giving free drugs to all my friends when you're giving free drugs away. You attract a lot of friends, and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we were all encouraging each other's negative behavior, and we were, you, were, you know, we were all going further down that slippery slope together. Now, at this point, do you quit your job as a stockbroker, or are you still doing both? Yeah, I quit. Now, take me it was through about your... It was about yeah. 1996, uh, 97 when I quit. Okay, so now, now you just flat out just sell... Are you only selling ecstasy, or are you selling other stuff? I had um, hundreds of people working for me at the peak of it, and they were involved in other club drugs as well. But by far the bulk of it was ecstasy. Now, two points in the show that I want to get to. One, you're selling drugs, going to raves, you're living the ultimate rock star party life. What was the ultimate factor in you quitting that lifestyle? I know the show showed Sammy the Bull and other gangsters threatening you. Was that the ultimate decision of you just getting out of it or quitting? It's like when you start out doing these things, the fun is in the beginning, and the fun slowly goes down over time, and the pain slowly increases. You know, that's why it's such a sucker's game, and anyone who tries to do it is always either going to get caught by the cops, they're going to burn out, they're going to get killed, or they're going to end up in prison. That's the bottom line. And, you know, the momentum was such that it spiked up really fast, and then a number of factors came into play that, that reversed it. Um, the stock market crashed, NASDAQ crashed, which reduced my resources, my financial resources. The mafia, Sammy the Bull's crew, started to infiltrate the scene. And around that time, I met this fantastic woman. She wasn't mentioned in the episode because she didn't want to be interviewed. She was scared for her life about speaking out about that jail because she lives in the jur same jurisdiction as Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And she's one of the main characters in Hard Time. I met her towards the end of uh, my freedom in America, and she wasn't a raver. She wasn't from that scene. She mocked ravers. She said, you guys all look, look like a bunch of idiots sat around on ecstasy massaging each other with Vicks inhalers and all this stuff. And You know, I, I was attracted to that. And I fell in love with her, and we got a place together, and she taught me out of dealing ecstasy. And I had stopped it, 
but I still heard those wolves howling for me to come out and party on the weekends. I was so addicted to that lifestyle, and I would sneak off with my friends, getting high on ecstasy, and that was it was it was during that time that the police started the wiretap, and that's how they got the evidence against us. They didn't catch up with me when I was doing all the big ecstasy dealing. Okay. They caught with me just when it was down to that personal use, but it was enough for them, you know, to round everybody up and, and get the case going. Now, I want to get into Sheriff Joe in a second, but tell me about being threatened by Sammy the Bull, because being from New York, it was always John Gotti, Sammy the Bull, so when that, you know, that scene on Locked Up Abroad comes out, it sticks out. So what exactly happens, not play-by-play, play, but... His crew was just saying, because I know that's what he got in trouble for, selling ecstasy down there. So you're threatening his business? Is that what it is? Yeah, Sammy the Bull started uh, Ecstasy Ring out of Tempe, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was the base of my operations as well. This was about 1999, I believe. And, you know, I was called in to meet these guys. And I'm thinking I just wanted to find out some information about them, because... They were popping up at the rave, selling these pills. I wasn't sure who they were until I actually went to this meeting and they explained it themselves. Now, I was aware of Sammy the Bull and all the murders because it had been all over the news. Sure. And I'm thinking, this is getting way, way out of my league now, you know. And after one of my top ecstasy sales guys got his teeth knocked out by Sammy the Bull's crew, I actually moved from Phoenix to Tucson. I got so scared that, that, that they were going to try and take me out. I moved to Tucson into a house that was on a mountain. It was in a gated, guarded community. You had to get through a security point to even get down the street. And, you know, that I felt at that point that it, it gave me a degree of safety. Now, it was years later when I met, I met Sammy the Bull's son. I met him in the, in the Sheriff Joe Parr's jail, and I met him in the prison system as well later on. And Sammy the Bull's son, Gerard Gravano, he said he'd been dispatched as the head of an armed crew to kidnap me from a nightclub and take me out to the desert. Wow. And the only reason that, yeah, the only reason that I'd missed him that night is that my best friend, who was also one of my bouncers at the raves, had got in a fight. Uh, his name's Wildman. He got in a fight, and we had to leave in a hurry. And those guys had just missed us. They had a bounty out on, for anyone who spotted us in the in the the nightclubs or, the, or wherever, you know, to, to call in and report it to those guys immediately. And a female had spotted us in the nightclub and she called it in. But we just left as those guys just arrived. Now, the drugs had put a cloud in my head that didn't lift until after I was in the jail. And my decision-making processes were so scrambled, you know, I didn't have any clue of how dangerous these situations were I was putting myself in. I had an idea, but I, did, I didn't realize, you know, properly. I felt like I was living a movie. And we would joke, you know, that um, they can't stop the movie, we're above the law, we'll never get arrested. And we just thought we were, Mr. We were all Mr. Cool guys. But, you know, the, the, the level of dangerousness now, looking back at it, when that cloud first lifted and I started to look back at my life, the first thing I said to myself was, how on earth are you alive? You know, you put yourself in these these insane situations that I wouldn't have put myself in if, if I had, my, my brain hadn't been scrambled from doing all these drugs. Now, real quick, what was Sammy the Bull's son? What was he in jail for? Same thing. Uh, okay. He was... Sammy the Bull was the head of the ecstasy ring 
that got busted by the feds, and I think mm-hmm. it was Tempe Police Department. Shortly, be- it was a, it was a year be- about a year before my ecstasy ring got busted. So it was you know it was a very similar case, and Gerard Gravano, the son was arrested, the uh, the wife was arrested, the daughter was arrested, and um, they were all under Sammy the Bull, according to the police, as the lead players in the ecstasy ring. I think Sammy got 15 or 20 years, and Gerard got 10 years. Okay, now, Sean, here, here, here's my one big issue with the show, okay? And I hope you're not offended, yeah. but I, it's kind of a personal question. For what Don't I do for a living, I read a ton of books about true crime and the mafia. The amount of money you were making, the amount of money you admitted you were making, and you employed, you said, hundreds of people. The life of a dealer, yeah. it can be a violent one, but yet they showed no violence in the show. Are you going to try to say, like, no violence took place? Like, from petty pot dealers to cocaine dealers, heroin dealers, ecstasy dealers, there's always murders, kidnappings. Were you involved in any kind of violence, any kind of threatening behavior, any, anything like that? Okay, the show only had, I think it was 50 minutes. Yes, yes. To get everything in it. So it was very limited, you know, what scenes they could choose. Now, in my book, Party Time, which has just been published... The whole story is in there, and you know, I was I was running parties, I had a team of bouncers, and there were some incidences of violence, and they are all in the book, Party Time, I've completely come clean in that about everything that's happened, you know, nobody was murdered, it wasn't like Goodfellas, it wasn't like Scarface, there wasn't any heavy duty violence, the ecstasy scene and the rave scene is considered much less violent than the, like the crack and the heroin scene mm-hmm. but like you say that level of drug dealing there is going to be some situations and there were some situations and, and they're all in the, they're all in the book party time and I'm, i actually we, we were texting this morning i actually ordered both those books i do want to read that because that was the one thing in the show that really stuck out to me like this guy's gonna try to tell me there was no violence at all all right, so now you're quitting. We, we have actually a couple of callers. We're gonna, I don't know who they're from. One's a 405 area code. We'll get to it in a second, Sean. But describe okay. the moment you get arrested because you live in this gated community. You think you're out of the drug game. You're using ecstasy for personal use. Describe you getting arrested. Complete shock. Okay, so I've quit doing drugs now. And I've quit the – no, I'm, I'm sorry. I've quit dealing the ecstasy now. I'm still doing personal use on the weekends, but I'm trying to get my life back to normal. I've enrolled in college, you know, and I'm I'm going to the gym, doing all this stuff. And I'm on the computer because I'm getting back to stock trading now. I'm on the computer. Stock market's opened, so it's got to be just after 6.30 in the morning. And just next thing on the door, bang, 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 bang. So I go through the peephole and it's blacked out. So I'm thinking, is it drug dealer um, robbers trying to pretend to be cops, or is it cops? I've no idea. So I go to the window. I look out the window. The whole street then is just cop cars are everywhere, you know. There's marks, men, there's all kinds. I hear these swats coming up the stairs. And I run back to the bedroom then to get Claudia. I'm like, what should we do? What should we do? And we're like, all right, we better let him in. So we get halfway through the living room, and then just boom, the door completely flies off the hinges, smashes into a wall, and then they come in then, you know, just hands above your head, don't fucking move, get on the ground now. I'm absolutely terrified. I've brought this on myself, but I'm thinking, you know, 
I've never seen so many guns in my life all pointing at me. I could, my, my life's over in seconds if these guys open up. I'm thinking mm-hmm. they might just shoot me by accident. You know. And now, we, I, and I, in the show, you, to, Jordan, you had a gun in the house, right? So were you near the gun? No, no. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was no one. There was no one. Near, I was no one near any gun. We were just innocently walking through the living room to let these guys in, and um, they come in. Um, we just drop on the floor and we get crushed, and they handcuff us and yank us up. And that's when the the lead detective, you know, said it was a big name from the rave scene, mm-hmm. and he was sure the raid would justify the charges. Now, what I think they think happened is I hadn't quit the large dealing. I think they 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 thought I'd gone even bigger, and they were expecting to find loads of of, of evidence of you know massive money and massive drugs. And because the Nasdaq and the stock market had crashed, I was down to my last couple of hundred thousand, and there was absolutely no drugs in the house at all. And all the people who were working for me, you know, they they there was there was. Over the month, there was over 100 people arrested in in, in uh, SWAT team raids, and there was barely any drugs found among any of those people either. Oof. Now, real quick, because before, I want to talk about jail, but we I, we have a few callers, most of them my idiot friends trying to prank me, but there's actually a number I don't recognize, so we're going to go with that in a second. <laughs> but before I talk about jail, did you go to trial, or did you take a plea? Because I, I thought I remembered something about you possibly getting a life sentence. Was that on yeah, the table? in Phoenix, Arizona, 98% of the cases go to plea bargain. The jail is where they just scur the living daylights out of you by hanging over you a massive sentence to get you to sign a plea bargain. The prosecutors, they like used car salespeople. You know, over the month, the sentence slowly comes down. And in the beginning, you're thinking, all right, 10 years is the end of the world. But uh-huh. if you're told you're facing 200 years, like I was, they said every single charge, every time you spoke on the phone was five to 10 years. We, if you go to trial and lose, we'll make an example of you. We'll stack all these charges up to a maximum 200-year sentence. That's what I was told in the, in, the, in the beginning. So by the time it came down to 10 years, nine and a half years, um, you know, I consider myself lucky. Yeah. And that's what I signed for in the end. All right, now, Sean, before, because I want to, the show doesn't truly describe the treatment you get in jail, but I just want to go to this one caller besides all my friends trying to prank. It's a 405 okay. area code number. Hold on, we're going to click them on right now. Okay. All right, 405, you're on the air. Who's talking? Hey, actually, it's a friend of Sean's. I did oh, his hi. website for him. It's Will. So it's not one of your friends pranking. It's one of Sean's giving him a call to say hi. <laughs> hi, Will. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Hopefully Karen and Andrew are listening too. I did them also. Hey, one of the things I did want to say to, to one of your last points was I think that um, attorneys in this country have kind of abrogated their responsibility to their clients in that 98% of, of cases go to plea bargain. I think that there should be a concerted effort to take every single one of those cases to trial and just see how fast the system collapses, just see how fast we uh, get rid of mandatory sentencing um, how fast we get rid of three strikes or outlaws, um, all of these things that uh, are creating huge problems in the California penal system. Um, and I've lived in Phoenix, uh, Maricopa County. I know um, Arpaio. He's crazy. I mean, he's he's a, he's a nutcase. Oh, the sheriff. Um, we're going to get to yeah. him in a minute. I've, I've read stuff about, I guess he does a reality show where, like, we'll get to that in a second, Sean, because I, I was reading about, he seems horrible, this guy. 
Yeah, I, I don't want to get too sidetracked off of uh, our pile. We all know he's the boogeyman, and we all agree he's the boogeyman. But the point I wanted to make was about about the lawyers in this country and the way the judicial system kind of just herds people through like cattle. Um, and somewhere along the line, you know, people have abrogated their responsibility to, uh, you know, justice rather than punishment, you know, for, well, well, you're, for these you're right. things. It's becoming a revolving door. It, if, if everything with the trial be so backed up, yet... Every, they tell everyone just take please, take please, take please. That's all they tell everyone to do. And let me let me just make one other point. Sean, Sean is hang on one second. Sean, Sean is Sean is lucky in the fact that he's a foreign national, so he goes back to Europe and mm-hmm. doesn't have a criminal record. There are millions of people in this country with criminal records, and they can't have jobs. They can't have an engineering degree because you can't get certified if you're a felon. Uh, you can't be a lawyer. There's a, a million things that a felony conviction denies you in this country. Um, and I don't mean to say that Sean's uh, punishment was trivial by any means. I'm just saying that uh, there's a couple points that I just wanted to point out. And also I wanted to say hi to Sean. And I'll hey, well, take my, very my... much, Will. That, that, that's a really good point. The justice system in Arizona is a business model. If you go to trial, it costs the state thirty to 50000 They don't want to lose that money. So... The, jail, the remand jail is designed to, to scare people. It's like a conveyor belt to the prison system where the private prisons and the prisons get $50,000 a year of taxpayers' money per prisoner. And, you know, that's why some of these states, like you mentioned California, California is spending more on prisons right now than it is on education, which is obscene. And, every, know, and they're going bankrupt. There the- should be rehabilitation, but there's not. They want the guys to come right back to keep the profits going, and the politicians are on it as well because they're getting massive political contributions to keep it in place. Of course, but I don't want to get too sidetracked. I just want to get, okay, you're arrested, and obviously locked up abroad, like you said, only an hour show, 50 minutes, 48 minutes with commercials. It doesn't truly describe yeah. the treatment in jail you were put, put in. Uh, I've read so much about about you. Like just be, Right after the show, I Googled you. I, went through, I watched a lot of your interviews. I can't wait to read your books, but just tell bits and pieces or whatever you want about the inhumane treatment and the conditions you, not just you, and the other prisoners faced in this jail. Can you describe the jail and some of the things, the horrific things you witnessed? Well, it's like something out of a horror movie. As soon as you go in, you you just um, packed into one of these little cells, and it's completely gang controlled. There's no way the guards can watch all the inmates. So you've got to get used to the sounds of heads getting bashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, seeing people getting carried out on stretches who look like they're dead. Um, the food, you know, was moldy bread and green bologna was the breakfast. In the evening, it was a mystery meat slop called Red Death. It looked like carroty vomit blended with blood. Oh, at all this random meat in it, and it sometimes had dead rats in it. I lost about 25 pounds because I was living off peanut butter and peanuts the whole time I was in the remand jail. Um, The heat, you know, it's almost 50 degrees at the peak in Arizona, and it's hot all year round. There's a little swamp cooler that hardly blows any air when it was working. So the inmates are covered in these bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores that keep you awake all night. Because it's just it's, it's just itching you all night long, you're sweating constantly, and because you're sweating without any end to it, the outer layers of your skin turn soggy. So when you scratch yourself, because you've got all this itchiness, clumps of your own skin detach under your nails, 
And then there's the murders by the guards as well. This jail, they've paid out almost 50 million in lawsuits now. I, re- I read more that. Than the I top read that. Five jails combined. And the guys that the, the, the guards are murdering, they're not the big bad gang members. They're the mentally ill, and they even murdered a blind guy called Brian Crenshaw in there who failed to produce his ID. That was the reason they beat him up, and he died. Yeah, they, he failed to produce documentation, and they beat him mercilessly, right? Yep, they, um, he, failed to, he failed to produce his ID, okay. and they beat him, and he had severe internal injuries, and he went into a coma, and he died over a month later. And Sheriff Joe Arpaio, when, when they asked him about this, he said the guy fell off his bunk. That was his, his reason. He backed his guards up. And some of the guards that were found responsible in federal court for murdering these prisoners, Arpaio gave them pay rises and promotions. That's just brutal. But listen, do me a favor. Tell the audience about Sheriff Joe, because you're a big advocate against him. And in your journal, you wrote... Well, you want to tell everybody how the journal got started, because I found this the most fascinating part of the show, how you started a journal from inside. Well, a guard said to me, the world has no idea what's really going on here in, in, in terms of the human rights violations. And that was a week someone had been murdered in the shower. Someone had jumped off a balcony to kill themselves. All this stuff was going on, you know, cockroaches were crawling over us all night long in the maximum security jail, which was, which made it very difficult to sleep. And um, I thought, all right, well, you know, maybe it's time that the world should know about this, but how on earth could I achieve that? Now, my dad had just read a book by a guy called Salem Pax, the Baghdad blogger, he started a, a, a blog when the bombs started falling, mm-hmm. and it was in the news, and we thought, all right, well, if, you know, if blogging's getting in the news, maybe it's a medium we could use to expose what was going on. So I started to write things down. It, it was discussed throughout my family. My mum was terrified that the guards were going to retaliate, and that's why we called it John's Jail Journal, in the hope that they wouldn't find out who I was. Okay. Now... I started writing these things with a tiny little pencil, a golf pencil, sharpened on the door, on this paper that was sweat-soaked. It was so hot in there, the sweat was just dripping off me onto the paper I was, as I was writing. And to this day, my, that, you know, those original blog entries are in my parents' house and, and the paper's all crinkled. Oh. I can't put them in the mail because the guards can open the mail. How am I going to get them out of maximum security? I recruited my aunt. She came and visited me on the weekends. Now, I couldn't pass anything to her at visitation because the, the visits are through plexiglass windows. Okay. Like in, in uh, Silence of the Lambs, when Clarice Starling first meets Hannibal Lecter, it's a bit like that. You're talking to the person through a phone that you pick up on a cord. But what I could do was I could release property to her, and that included legal paperwork, letters, books that I'd read. So I hid what I wrote in that stuff. The first time I took it up to visitation, my heart's going like crazy. I'm thinking the guards are going to find it because they search for everything. But they're trained to look for contraband, drugs, syringes, cash, stuff like that. So he's going through it and he's not noticing anything that's written down. He's got it on his desk the entire time of the visit. And I'm looking over there like he's shown in the episode. My heart's still going. I'm thinking he's going to go through it again. He's going to notice this stuff, you know, hell to pay. And then by the end of the visit, my aunt goes over to him, and then he, he, he released it to her, and she took it out, you know, winked at me, and went home, typed them up, emailed them to my family in England, and that's how the blog started. And it was the BBC who ran it, 
and it snowballed and it went on to attract international media attention to the conditions. The maximum security jail was closed down two years later, but Sheriff Joe runs six different jails. And all he all he's done is replaced it with a new high tech house of horrors down the street. So all this stuff is still going on. I've got a video on my YouTube channel right now, which is um Sean Atwood is, is the name for that channel, of a prisoner getting murdered in the new maximum security jail. His name is Ernie. He's a Latino war hero. He's come back from fighting and he's schizophrenic. He's diagnosed as mentally ill. His crime is allegedly yelling at a lady in a parking lot and kicking a door. Now, he's got his back to the wall in a cell. Okay. About over 10 guards come in. He's not kicking off in any way. He's not attacking anyone or anything. They grab him, throw him down. They fall on him like a pack of wolves. They're beating him, they're electrocuting him with tasers, and he has a heart attack and dies. So if anyone listening to this wants to see how real this stuff is, I've got videos on my YouTube channel of guards murdering prisoners and gang members murdering prisoners in the jail I was at. Now, just also, just say, if you just Google your name, it's going to come up if you go to videos, because I actually saw that. I went to all your videos. Now, Sean, yeah. just, do me a favor, just do me a favor. Tell the audience about Sheriff Joe... Because he's the guy who runs this prison. And just give someone a background about him. Because after you mentioned him, I've been doing research on him. And he seems like a, just a horrendous human being, like just a horrible person. Can you just give some examples of what goes on there, what he does? Well, you know, he's the architect of the whole system. And if you've got mentally ill people routinely dying and other people routinely dying at the hands of the guards, gang members murdering people... It's it's one of the most extreme, dangerous environments you could possibly create in America, you know, which goes around the world championing human rights. To have this in their own backyard, it's it's horrific. You very rarely see him in the jail. When you do, he's surrounded by his bodyguards. I was sat in my cell one day, and I heard all this abuse raining down. I went to the window, and there he was, and everyone's just yelling about how much they hate him. But whenever you see any of these documentaries that he's on, all the prisoners are around him, looking up to him, asking him all these questions. You know, it's all, it's all completely staged. Of course, of course. Now, I was having this discussion with a psychotherapist the other day. I mean, what would cause someone to to create such a, you know, evil place that of mayhem and murder like this? An environment of hell, it like. Such an advanced society as America, and his opinion was that Sheriff Joe Arpaio is projecting the guilt and self-hatred he feels subconsciously because his mum died giving birth to him. That was his assessment of the situation. I don't like to be judgmental, you know. I'm not going to say I hate Sheriff Joe because he's done this. I'm trying to understand where the guy's coming from. And I'm campaigning to try and get these conditions changed and to get him booted out of the next election. That's the most I can do. You know, now, I don't want to pass judgment. Go on. So, one thing. Is it true that he's not even the head of the jail? He's not even a warden, right? He's not the head guy there, is he? Yeah, he is. He gets re-elected every four years by the people in Arizona. Okay. You know, Obama's tried to take him down in the federal court system. Mm-hmm. And not only did he say to Obama, I'm elected in the state of Arizona, I'm going to do whatever I want. As a snub, he announced his team of investigators were researching Obama's birth certificate. They determined it was phony 
and Obama's not even eligible to be running the country. He's out doing publicity stunts all the time. He's got Steven Seagal on his yes. sheriff's posse. <laughs> I saw that. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. Okay, now, you get nine and a half years. Describe to me the transformation from being incarcerated, not just overnight or for a month, for nine and a half years, to you being free. Tell me about the transformation. Was it, could you adapt to it? Are you still adapting to it? You mean adapting to the outside world after I was released? Exactly, being a free man. It's it's like when you get first arrested or when you get um, moved to a different jail mm-hmm. or when you're getting released, you get this look on your face. Oh, you almost look insane because of the stress and the uncertainty surrounding it. When you're getting released... It's half insanity and half happiness. And Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz, compared the released prisoner as as like a diver coming up with the bends. It's that intense. You're used to to your routine by now, you know, getting your food served for you, doing this, doing that. You're settled into a routine in jail. You're institutionalized once you've done over five years. And... um, so what happens with my release was they put me on Connor for a few days. If anyone's not familiar with Connor, it's the movie with Nicolas Cage where all the prisoners are on the plane, all handcuffed, oh. federal marshals are watching them. I'm on immigration Connor for a few days going across Arizona and California. I'm the only English guy. You know, it's all Mexican deportees. And then they, they, they take me to L.A. airport and they say, all right, we're going to put you on the plane before the passengers come so you don't scare them and we'll take your chains off and all that stuff. So then they put me on the plane. All the people start going on. I could smell the women's perfume, you know, after being around sweaty, hurry men for the past six years. I'm like, yeah, free at last, free at last. And um, But one of the first mistakes I made was I put my hand up and asked a female member of the cabin crew permission to go on the toilet. She's like, you don't need to ask. It's right there, you know, and I'm going bright red. Um, I get back to London. You know, my sister and my parents are all at the airport waiting for me. My sister's crying, my mum's crying, and uh, we're hugging and all this stuff. And they took me out to an Indian food restaurant. And because of the red death and the dead rats in the food, I ordered my favorite meal, which was chicken tikka masala. And I tried to eat it, and I got the gag reflex. And to this day, I'm, I'm still vegetarian because of that food. Now, my mum said then, back at the house, I was like a puppy dog falling around the house waiting for orders, wow. you know, because I was still institutionalized. But on the, on the happiness side of it, just being able to walk down a high street, to buy my own clothes, to go in a grocery store and get some yogurt and some bananas, that was the height of ecstasy for me. You know, that didn't last long, but I still wake up with a smile <laughs> on my face. There's no dead rats in my food. There's no cockroaches crawling on me at night time. There's no gang members busting into my cell, threatening me with oh, with this and that, trying to get food, free food out of me. You know, the, the jail actually did me a whole lot of good. And I'm, I'm, I'm Sheriff Joe Arpaio's um, poster child. He, you know, he, he could use me as an example of, of his, how his uh, tough law enforcement works. But sadly, for most of the guys in the jail, they get recruited by the gangs. They step up to shooting up heroin and crystal meth. Up to 90% of them were shooting up drugs. Hundreds of guys sharing, sharing a needle. 
up to 60% of them had hepatitis C, and they were just, it was a revolving door. They were, they were right back, back inside. And um, Phoenix has got the highest crime rate in the whole country, according to FBI statistics. So Sheriff Joe's hard-line tactics definitely aren't working. Now, a couple more questions. I know it's getting late there. What are you up to these days? What are you doing now? I, you're going around speaking a lot, aren't you? Yeah, you know, I deserve to be punished. I did all these crimes. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, the prison sentence was, was me repaying my debt back to society. But I feel a better way of repaying my debt back to society is going into schools, telling young people my story in the hope they don't make the same mistakes I did and go down that road of drug use, which is so glamorized in the media and with the celebrity drug addicts and the movies and the music videos. You know, and they don't listen to the parents, they don't listen to the teachers. But I go in, I say, I'm just here to tell you my story. I don't preach at them. And by the end of it, you know, they're absolutely on the edges of their seats. I mostly tell them about the jail conditions and friends, stories about friends that I've lost on drugs and what drugs have done to other friends of mine. And they draw their own conclusions, you know. I get emails every day on Facebook, Twitter, Hotmail, saying... You know, we don't listen to our parents and teachers, but because you came in and just told us your story, mm-hmm. it's shown us what drug use can lead to, you know, and it's put us off doing it. I even have parents of students contacting me, and they say, our kids don't talk to us when they come out of school. We, we're lucky if we can get a grunt. But they wouldn't shut up for days after hearing your talk, and it was the first time we could sit down with them and actually talk about drugs. So a lot of good has come out of the situation. I never imagined, you know, years ago when I was sat in that cockroach-infested cell thinking about slashing my wrist because I was facing up to 200 years that I would be in front of young people, tens of thousands a year, telling them a story like this. And, it, it, you know, I, I, I believe in karma. And it, it makes me real happy in my heart. And I feel really privileged that they do respond to it like they do, and, and I've got this opportunity now, just to be fair, I have a couple of questions. I will get to one caller, uh, 765 area code. It's not a New York number, so we should be good. Did you feel that, were you happy with the way the show, the show portrayed you and your story? Were you satisfied with it? You know what? I really was. Um, in the limited amount of time, they could only select certain scenes. And I was hoping they weren't just going to, you know, really glamorize all the drug stuff and minimize the activism. But what they did was they really stressed the activism and they really stressed the family side, you know. The heartbreak that my parents went through. Oh, and yeah, I your did mom and-, times and I deserve to be punished. You know, my parents and my sister as well. My sister went through a lot of suffering. She had to have counseling. You know, they were all innocent people and... You know, I tell the young people, you've got to think about your family members if, 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 if you're going down this road, if you're thinking about going this down this road, you've got to think about your family members. My mum's come in and actually spoke at a couple of schools to me with me, and, you know, the audience has been crying over it. So I was, I was, I was really impressed that the, the director, Harry Hewland, chose the scenes that he chose. He condensed it and he made it really gripping, and, um, you know, it was like cliffhangers after cliffhangers, kind of kind of like the prison break kind of gripping. Um, but, he, but very importantly, he brought in the activism and he brought in the family side 
And I think those two things, because when I woke up the next day after the premiere, and I had no idea what kind of reaction there was going to be, I had 500 emails and messages, and they were nearly all saying, you know, we had no idea that this, those jail conditions were so bad. There, were all, there was a massive outpouring of support from my parents. And, you know, people even said they supported the sheriff, said they watched it, and it, and it had made them change their minds. And it was my goal, you know, almost 10 years ago, to expose those jail conditions to the world. And I'm really, really grateful to National Geographic and Raw TV mm-hmm. for producing that episode and bringing it to, to such a massive worldwide audience. It's going to go on in England in about three months, and it's going to go to 40 more countries. And the total viewers in the first year are 50 million, and in three years it's going to be over 100 million people are going to know what's going on in that jail. Thank, Watch thanks to National Geo and Raw TV. Now, sure, I just want to have a couple of minutes. Just um, tell us about you. Before I get to this one caller, I just want to hear about the books. And a side note, I've watched every episode of Locked Up Abroad, and I think yours was the only episode that your mom and dad spoke in so candidly. They were beyond supportive. It was just it was touching to watch how supportive they were. But just tell us about the two books you have. I actually ordered them this morning. So just tell everyone about the two books you have out. Okay, my life story is coming out as a trilogy. Now, Hard Time which came out in 2010 in England and 2011 in America, is all the stuff that happened in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail. You know, the backstories in Chapter 1, but all the nitty-gritty. Locked Up Abroad could only show so much because it's, I think it was on at family time over there, but the, the hardcore details, the horrific stuff that more sensitive people would probably be reaching for the vomit bags over... Is all, is all in hard time. There's the romance stuff as well, because they missed out, you know, what happened with Claudia, my girlfriend. You know, she was my lifeline visiting me in the jail. So all that's been there. There's all the family side stuff is in there as well to balance that out. It's not a complete catalogue of horrors. So that's hard time. And we brought that one out first because most of the media interest in me had revolved around that jail because it's very famous in Arizona and America. Now, Party Time, which is the prequel to Hard Time, just got published last month Mm -hmm. and that is everything that led to the SWAT team smashing my door down and there's a lot more detail again than than they could possibly put in Locked Up Abroad, there's a lot more characters that they had to leave out and then Prison Time is going to be everything that happened after I was sentenced I've just finished that now, and we expect it to be published at the earliest next year. Now, in prison time, um, you know, my blog's really taking off, and I start writing about all the different prisoners. And the different prisoners that I'm writing about, they start to protect me against the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. And those characters range from two Tonys. He was a mafia mass murderer who left dead bodies from Tucson to Alaska. He claimed they all had it coming because they were rival gangsters. He never, so he never saw anything wrong with that. Seems if legit. murdered gangsters, you're at the top of the respect order on the prison yard. And, I, he, you know, he made some of my problems go away. He was serving 112 years, and sadly, he died just a couple of years ago from liver cancer as a consequence of his own drug taking. But he dictated his life story to me. So after the trilogy's a 15-year project, and when that's finished, I'm going to get on to writing the life stories of individual prisoners that I met 
that I bonded with while I was inside. Oh, that's, that's awesome. But Charles, I want to go with one caller because, like I said, all these numbers are New York and New Jersey numbers, so we're not going to take them. This is a 765 number. Hold on. Okay. 765, you're on the air with Mike and Sean. Who are we talking to? Hey, what's up? It's uh, Elwood. Hey, oh, Elwood. Uh, <laughs> what's up, Elwood? Didn't recognize Indianapolis, I take it. I didn't. But, Sean, yeah. Sean, real quick, Sean, this is a, I do a sports show, and Elwood calls in all the time. But Elwood, congratulations on your Pacers. I'm Thank up here you. in New York. Listen, I'm up here in New York but, praying, what? and I mean this. Praying that what? they beat the Heat. I mean that. Well, thank you, because I was at that game when they beat the Knicks, so I oh. felt for you. It was bad. Hey, what I called about is I have a lot of family out in Arizona, and I fly out there a lot for um, Diamondbacks games and stuff, so I know all about Sheriff Joe. They did a TV special on him here in Indianapolis, and it was great. He came out, you know, he comes out like the proverbial grandfather, and he says, well, a lot of people say I'm strict, you see. And what it is is I've took coffee out of the kitchen uh, cafeterias there in the prison because prisoners don't need coffee. Am I a bad man because they don't have ketchup packets? No. And they had prisoners in this coming up to him with postcards with his picture asking him to sign it. He says, if they, if I treated them so bad, would they want my autograph? And then he had this this smile. And then they interviewed some prisoners, and they were like, but we have to eat green bologna. You know, and they were talking about what you were talking about, and he came out. Now, that's good bologna. I'd eat that bologna. And oh, then he was sitting in, like, a brown padded chair with an American flag behind him at his desk, like he's your best grandpa, and talking about how prisoners, you know, shouldn't enjoy prison. That's why he makes them wear pink underwear, because they don't like pink underwear. And, oh, oh, my gosh, you guys so nailed it. This guy's so full of it. You know, he was talking about how he makes them live in tents. And even the interviewer said, but Phoenix is deadly hot. Well, you uh-huh. see, they're prisoners. What do they want, an air-conditioned cell with a bed? And you could see the interviewer's face like, well, yeah, that sounds about what they should have. But Elwood, Elwood why, I, was he, why was he on there? They just had a documentary on him? Is oh, that what it was? yeah, well, they they because, you know, the Arizona prison system, you know, he's, of believe course. it or not, the media tries to paint this guy like it's a model of prison systems, you know. I mean, you know, they, uh, I'm serious. If you ask some little cookie-baking grandma who Sheriff Joe is, she'll say, oh, he's a good man because he don't give them coffee and ketchup packets, you know, and doesn't, you know, I mean, I'm serious. They just kind of, they do that on different places. I bet, I bet you a lot of places in America has done a, a show on him like he's some sort of American hero, you know, helping to get the prison system, you know, because basically taxpayers don't want to pay to keep these people in here. So anything mm-hmm. that the taxpayer thinks is going to save them some money, they're going to like. You know, but somewhere along the road we forgot they're still human beings. Oh, without a they doubt. Come out of there, and if they come out of there worse than when they came in, what are we doing? And that, I totally agree with you yeah. on the punishment. If you can't get a job, you're going to go back to crime. Yeah, it's you a know. revolving door. It, it truly is it's, a revolving a revolving door. It, oh, it I is. I agree Look, totally. If I'm a counterfeiter, all... if I'm a counterfeiter and I try to get a job at a daycare and they say, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, you've got a prison record. You can't work in a daycare. I'm probably not going to be anything sinister towards these children if I'm a counterfeiter. You know, I think certain crimes should keep you from certain jobs, but not all jobs. You know, I and think that, one, that one felony, law. yeah, and that one felony killed just well, now. If we you're a child molester, you should never be allowed oh, to work I'm, in a daycare. Like well, Michael should Vick be, should, be should never be allowed to work with animals. I'm okay with that. But if Michael Vick wants to be a waiter at a restaurant, sounds good to me. You oh, know. way to go out on a limb with the Michael Vick thing. Listen, Elwood, we, oh, we have short. Hey, we can't all be Andrew Luck, guys. 
Oh, God, of course. Listen, Ellen, hey, we only have a short go, Mike. five hey, minutes. Mike. Yeah. Mike, before I go, yeah. you know how you keep a Knicks fan from beating his wife? Put a Pacers <laughs> Hello, jersey on her. <laughs> All right. Listen, good luck tomorrow night. I'll talk to you later. Sean? Hey, yeah. Sean. A uh, couple, couple more things. He's just a call. He calls in every every show. He's just the biggest Indianapolis fan ever. Okay, Sean, we're gonna finish up with this. Any backlash from the sh- from the show? Anything negative about the show? Any negative feedback? All right. So it's going on over a month now since the premiere, and I've, the messages have risen to over a thousand. I've only had out of the over a thousand four death threats. And they're from Sheriff Joe, Arpaio loyalists. I think that is a pretty good. I think that's a pretty good ratio, four out of over a thousand. And you know these guys are just mouthing off, saying you know you deserve to be dead. We'll kill you if you come out here. If you were in Singapore, you'd have been executed. All this stuff, you know, scumbag, um, ecstasy dealer, and all this. And I sent them. I sent them all responses. Uh I said. Thank you very much for taking the time to express your opinion. You know, you are right in a sense that I did wrong. I committed these crimes. You know, and it was bad. You are right. You are 100% right about that. I shouldn't have done it. You know, but all I can do now is change the future, and I'm trying to make amends by going into schools and hoping young people won't make the same mistakes I, I'm, I made. And that's as far as I can take it. You know, where would we be? if people weren't given second chances in life. And out of those four, one of them did email back to me, and he, he had softened his uh, opinion of the situation, let's put it that way. <laughs> All right, Sean, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. I actually had a great time interviewing you, and all I do really is interview sports guys from every kind of sports guy in New York. I interviewed Eric O'Day. It was a little different because he's still denying. Whatever the real story is with him, he's denying, denying. So it kind of came off as a little, uh, he came off a little arrogant. But I'm going to be honest, this was one of the funnest times I've ever had, man. And hey, listen, everyone should buy your books. I actually ordered both of them. Um, I'm telling you, I travel the entire world. All I do is travel. So when I go to England, I'm going to hit you up, and we're going to go out. We'll hang out for a little bit, all right? But you're going to keep me out of trouble, all right, we'll, there, we'll, we'll have a pint in uh, a pub in London, and, and uh, we won't get in any trouble. All right, sure. No, listen, I prob- I'll hang out with you, just no raves. Is that a deal? No, no rave, no ecstasy. <laughs> maybe, maybe a Guinness. <laughs> um, and after you've read Hard Time and Party Time, mm-hmm. you're probably going to have some more questions, Mike. So if you want to do well, this again, it's sure, been, it's exactly been a real pleasure for me, and I, I'm up, for, I'm up for it. I, that's what I was going to ask you. When I finish your two books, I would love to talk to you again because I'm going to have other things to talk about. But listen, thank you so much. I know it's almost midnight there. I really appreciate you giving me an hour of your time, man. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. I'll talk to you later, buddy. All right, cheers. Bye. What a great interview with him. Uh, You've got to watch the episode. It's really a fascinating episode. And like he said, the show only gives you 48 minutes of, of action, basically. His book's got tremendous reviews. And the episode is one of the highest rated episodes. It's called Raving Arizona. His name is Sean Atwood. S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T-W-O-O-D. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Mike Sappho. And there's 26 callers, but a lot of them are New York numbers, and I'm, I'm not going to answer them and be yelled at on the radio, made fun of, <laughs> especially in front of my new friend, Sean. So, everyone, thank you. There'll be a new episode coming up soon. Everyone have a good night.